Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. Ladies and gentlemen, please remain standing for the singing of our national anthem. He said Britain is just a small island that no one pays attention to. A former colony won the right to determine its own destiny. As you probably know, Mid-Atlantic is part of the Agora Podcast Network. And each month we like to promote a new podcast for your podcasting ears. This month is the Land of the Lathiathan podcast. If you like pop culture and intellectual and political thoughts, and particularly where the two overlap, this is the podcast for you. Go to the Agora Podcast Network or a podcatcher of your choice to listen to the Land of the Leviathan podcast today. Hello and welcome to Mid-Atlantic, the show where we look at the news and the views from one side of the Atlantic from the perspective of the other. Today I'm joined by Benjamin Urban Planner Jacobs from New Jersey and John Jerno Elledge from London. Say hello, gentlemen. Hello. Hello, gentlemen. And I'm your host, Royfield Brown, in a sunny London. In a week that has seen Prince George refuse to fist bump the Prime Minister of Canada, we ask just why are the polls so close in the US presidential race? And are we really going to Brexit? But yes, I mean, I will be saying in my speech today that we will trigger before the end of March uh, next year. Uh, a reasonably brisk trigger. And, and at that point, we have two years to conclude these negotiations. That's what the process uh, within the, uh, the treaty says, yes. So once you say, you send your letter, say, right, I'm now triggering Article 50, what then happens? Well, it's for the European Union. They, the, the remaining members of the EU, have to decide what the process of negotiation is. I hope, and I'll be saying to them, that uh, now that they know what our timing is going to be, it's not an exact date, but they know it'll be in the first quarter of next year, that we'll be able to have some preparatory work so that once the trigger comes, we have a smoother process of negotiation. With Theresa May announcing that she will trigger Brexit or Article 50 by the end of March, does Brexit really mean Brexit? Over to you in my hometown of Birmingham, John Elledge. 
It is looking horribly like it, isn't it? Um, I've been kind of existing in this happy delusion that there's there's a lot of very comforting articles you can find out there if you're if you're so minded that explain that it's going to be so difficult to get a deal that actually the sensible thing to do is just keep kicking the can down the road. And, you know, there's no point activating Article 50 now, because if we do that, then we lose our negotiating position, because once you activate Article 50, it's two years and then you get chucked out if you don't have a deal. So obviously you don't want to do that until you've already got a deal. So so we don't activate it. We kind of wait a bit. And then next year there's French and German elections. So you kind of want to wait for them to go by and then maybe something else happens. And I've just been getting myself into this place where I was thinking, you know, maybe it's never going to happen. Maybe the circumstances will change so radically that that they will find a way of wriggling out of it. But on, on TV this morning, the Prime Minister made very clear that the plan is to activate Article 50 in the first quarter of next year. So, barring miracles, we are going to be out of the EU by the spring of 2019, about which 52% of the population is presumably incredibly excited, and the other 48, of which I am one, are slightly terrified. So, yeah, I think it is it's extremely difficult to see a way a way that this doesn't happen at this point. I think once you've set a timetable, you've staked your your entire political credibility on it. And, you know, it's it's happening. This is real. Ben, um, the European Union symbolizes free trade and globalization and free trade and globalization seems to have made their way into the US presidential election. are you anti-free trade? Are you are you scared of the forces of globalization? And how how much do you think your average American is going to be paying attention to the fact that we have actually triggered Article Fifty, or that there is a date, sorry, for triggering Article Fifty, which is March of 2017? I'll take the last part of that question first. Um, the the average American probably has no idea. Uh, that that has happened uh, I will just um, they um, at the risk of sounding elitist there's uh, a very little attention paid to general news items let alone news items from across the pond so um, well, just, don't, don't massively derail you here but the one thing that I was struck uh, with this summer when I was in the Bay Area was the amount of people which did make a link between the rise of Trump and talking about anti-globalisation and with the British vote to narrowly to leave the EU. So th- there was there was that link uh, made, though whether people are sat down around their radios or listening to the Sunday morning political shows and whether it's been mentioned, um, yeah, uh, that would, would completely not be a moot point. But anyway, go on. Go on. Sorry. <laughs> no, no, it, it, that's a legitimate point. Um, and it's not a... Asking the question wasn't wrong because people were making that connection. But I think uh, at this point, people are so wound up in the in the presidential election and everything that's going on um, that... You know, the usual uh, American tunnel vision has sort of reasserted itself. Um, in terms of the wider issues about globalization, um, for myself, I'm cautiously optimistic about free trade. Um, I tend to fall in line with the camp that views it as important for reasons that go beyond the economy. Uh, I think free trade is important for 
you know, establishing a free flow of ideas around the world and uh, as lofty as this sounds, sort of establishing global peace um, by, you know, helping people get to know each other and making sure that it's very costly to go to a full-scale war these days. Um, possibly it depends how good you are at war. Oh, yeah, sure. Certainly. I mean, any war that takes less than a couple weeks, you know, you can get away with, but... Um, I don't know of... about that. The, the British <laughs> went to war in the late 19th century against the Sultan of Zanzibar. It took about 48 minutes to, for him to admit a defeat and surrender. Uh, independence of Zanzibar w was lost there and then, within within an hour. Yeah, so, I mean, you know, you, they got away with it. <laughs> <laughs> the Zanzibaris didn't, they've never been independent since, and it's been snuffed out from the map. But, okay. Um, John? In, in well, in, it's the, part of Tanzania now, isn't it? It's like, absolutely. That, the name Tanzania is a combination of Zanzibar and Tanganyika. So, there you go. Don't say I never teach you anything. Well, <laughs> well, well, in well terms done, of the, Yeah, go on, go on. In, ter in terms of the wider economic issues, mm -hmm. you know, I hate to take a page out of Trump's book, but there's, you know, there's good deals and there's bad deals. And um, I, I'm not a proponent of completely open borders, complete free trade. Um, uh, it makes sense to me that people do something to look after themselves. But <clears throat> and, and certainly there are there's the possibility of free trade causing economic havoc, which is something that this country has been facing for 40 years now. But I also think that the arguments against free trade tend not to focus on the economy, which is what they should be focusing on. And they tend to focus on scary things like foreigners. Uh, mm. So that's just my take. <laughs> All right. Well, this is that, that's a great link back to one of the big bogeymen of uh, the Brexit campaign. Um, you know, it was Eastern European people. It was it was foreigners. Um John. That's a weird thing that's happened this week, actually, is that, oh. um, um, I mean, the, the the particular foreigners that we were we were most told to be frightened of during the Brexit campaign were the, were the Turks, who, you know, the the Leave campaign were going around saying, oh, you know, Turkey's going to join the European Union, and, you know, suddenly 70 million people are going to turn up on our doorstep, and then, you know, we'll effectively have a common border with Syria and all this, you know. It was, it, it wasn't even dog whistle racism because it was it was pretty damn audible to be honest you know it was it was just racism <laughs> really um but obviously one of the leaders of that campaign was was boris johnson who now now is our beloved foreign secretary and this week came out in favor to say what a wonderful thing it'll be when turkey joins the european union so <laughs> suddenly so, apparently the apparently the eu is good enough for turkey but it's not good enough for us so well, or it's good enough for a, an EU that doesn't encompass Britain. You know, basically, he doesn't care, surely. In in the past 20 seconds, we've given more thought to, to the implications of Boris Johnson's position than Boris Johnson himself ever has. <laughs> so I think there is there is a danger in analysing too deeply here, because um, he is a man who just kind of says the, the most uh, convenient thing at the time, which is which is worked pretty well for him, to be fair, so who am I to judge? Um, but, but, I mean, he was always... I feel like I'm babbling now, but he was he's always actually been quite pro European. It's just that it was politically expedient to take the other side. So mm. anyway, sorry, before I started banging on about that, you were about no, to no, ask no. a question. No, no. Uh 
I'm going to ask another question to you, John, because I've always been... My whole thing of saying that Brexit could well never happen uh, was was really predicated on one... Well, two things. Number one, the time scale, uh, i.e. there's going to be another general election pretty soon, round about the time of any proposed kind of Brexit. And then also there is the thorny question of the, of the House of Commons. So with those two things in mind... Let's say that the date for Brexit is uh, approximately March 2019. Surely, 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 that deal, whatever that deal is, has to go to the Houses of Commons and that the House of Commons is anti-Brexit. Almost regardless of what the the deal is, the deal would have to be so Brexit-light that a deal can't get to the House of Commons uh, which would trigger a general election, and that next general election would be fought on the terms of exit. I I think this is a very comforting narrative. Um, I mean, seriously, I might listen to this episode. This is a bedtime story when I can't get to sleep. Um, but I'm not. No, I'm not. I'm not buying it. I mean, the problem is, I think you're right. Instinctively, if it was a completely free vote of the 650 people in the House of Commons, probably four or 500 of them would want to stay in the European Union. The problem is, we've now had a vote. Um, so firstly, it's quite, it, it changes the, the, the dynamic when you're not just saying, you know, this is what I believe. It's like, this is what I believe enough to go against the clearly stated will of the British people. That takes a certain level of, of, of bravery. But on top of that, there was um, an academic at the University of East Anglia, a guy called Chris Hanretti, um, did a piece of research trying to work out how many British constituencies had a majority for Brexit. And, you know, the, the, we only had results by local authorities, which actually have slightly different boundaries. Mm. But his estimate was that something like, 450 I think it was uh, constituencies not only a clear majority a very large majority of seats clearly voted for Brexit Um, so it's actually quite difficult to make the argument that well I, I I don't agree with Brexit therefore as your representative I'm going to vote against it um, both because it takes a certain amount of political courage that is not always in, in uh, great supply. But also, it is, it's quite a big deal when there has been a referendum and your constituency voted one way. It's quite a difficult thing for an MP to turn around and go, you know what, you were wrong. Um, and I think there is a, a moral argument, I hate to say it, but I think there is a moral argument that, you know, maybe we do just have to do this terrible self-harming uh, thing that's going to sort of wreck our our diplomatic status and our economy as well because the people voted for it i don't i i don't see an easy way back from this i was kind of hoping that we would find a way of fudging it but now now we've set a timetable i'm not even sure we can do that so if you need me i'll be hiding in a cupboard somewhere weeping to myself <laughs> ben um mm-hmm. kind of mentioned this before but tpp at least I hinted at it, but TPP as uh, you know that that acronym has definitely found its way into the American uh, political lexicon this year. Um, why is it that the Republican Party, or at least some elements of the of the Republican Party, can be so now anti free trade? And ha- and and can anybody remember a Republican actually being anti free trade before a Republican candidate for the presidency? 
they are suddenly anti-free trade because they realize there's a constituency for it. And uh, no. <laughs> Second part. <laughs> Uh, I mean, the Republican Party was always the, you know, the, not the Libertarian Party, but close to that. You know, the, you're talking about traditional uh, bunting on the windows, American Americana Party, the grand old party and everything. And um, they were against big government. And part of that was being against restrictions on free enterprise. And, you know, free trade is a, a big old non-restriction on free enterprise. This is a huge change for them. Um, and I think they are doing it just basically because all of a sudden there's, a, there's, there's an angry white constituency uh, of, of blue collar or ex-blue collar um, areas of the states that are railing against the fact that um, America isn't as white as it used to be, and this is a convenient peg to hang your coat on. And I'm so mixed my metaphors and mangled <laughs> that, but I think you got the general sense of, of what yeah. I was saying. I think that's probably why most of Trump supporters are in on it. But it's also this isn't a completely new issue. I mean, we had riots back in the late '90s in Seattle about uh, anti-globalization. Um, it was a different segment of the electorate. Oh no, a but... absolutely! That, that was interesting. You, you should actually actually bring that up because completely that was in that now though those would be Bernie supporters that were doing right. that. And then that's sort of why Trump maybe delusionally thought that he could probably attract some Bernie supporters over to his side. Which I, if he has attracted any, the numbers are in the single digits. But um, yeah, I, I, there's. There's something to be said for the fact that this is an issue that hasn't had representation in a major political party, uh, not directly. Mm. Um, I don't think he's doing a good job of articulating the real issues, uh, like I indicated before, um, <laughs> making this uh, more about you know scary foreigners than it is about the actual bread and butter economic issues. But yeah, I, I think this is an issue. All right, uh, John. And slightly, uh, I'm always the glass is half full, and and you're always a miserable old sod, generally. Uh, well, always, always. Generally. I resent that. Well, thank you. It, but it, but it's a fact. But um, so today we had Anna Sobri, um, ex-Tory minister, saying that Theresa May has pressed the button on Brexit way too soon, and the EU holds all the cards. It's hard not to fundamentally agree with the last bit of what she said, which is the EU holds all the cards. If we say we're going to leave in two years' time, before any negotiations have actually started, what deal can we actually get? Surely it's going to be the worst of all deals and um, it's going to be the hardest of all hard Brexits. Um, we are cutting off our noses to spite our faces in terms of trade. Yep, that's about the size of it. I mean, I feel like you were kind of you wanted me to say something arguing with that in some way. And the problem is, I can that's you've just summed up my my sense of the whole. I mean, to get a deal, it it has to be something that is acceptable to the other twenty seven states of the European Union and the British electorate, right? And mm -hmm. the problem is, the British electorate 
for a start, want contradictory things. They kind of want freedom of movement for, you know, British people. We kind of don't like the idea of having to get a visa to go to France or not being able to move to Berlin or the south of Spain or whatever. We can't, that aspect of freedom of movement we quite like. But the bit where other Europeans can move here, that we, we've kind of done with that part. So that's, that's, that's difficult. Secondly, you know, I'd, we kind I'd, of want to... I'd slightly disagree with you there. I think we have a problem with um, Europeans moving here who we don't see as being Northern European. Well, well, you know, the, the French are fine, Belgians, Dutch, Germans, Scandinavian countries. After that, it becomes slightly more problematic. It, yeah, you know. I mean, that's it. I mean, there was a, a moment during, I think, the 2015 election campaign where someone, uh, Nigel Farage, the leader of UKIP and the, you know, the architect of this whole mess, sorry, ex-leader of UKIP, he's, he finally stood down without instantly running for the job again, um, is... He has real problems with many of the uh, many of the countries in Europe, uh, but he's married to a German. His wife is German. His kids are half German and uh, have German passports uh, and uh, a kind of an almost a sort of left wing shock jock called I think it was James O'Brien said to him, you know, why are you OK with Germans coming here, but not with Romanians? What's the difference? And Nigel Farage just said, you know what the difference is. Mm. And the problem is everyone kind of does know what the difference is. And it's like we're, we're, we're basically okay with rich Northwestern Europeans. We're not so certain on people from Southwestern Europe and, you know, Eastern Europe. No, no, not none at all. Um, so, so yeah, you're, you're quite right. But nonetheless, the, the, the point I was getting at is we kind of, we already want something contradictory on the most basic level of how to approach freedom of movement, which is we kind of want one set of rules for the Brit, one set of rules for Britain and another for everyone else. We also want to retain access to the single market, which you can't do without retaining freedom of movement. Um, we don't want to pay into the EU budget, which you have to to have access to the single market. Um, we would ideally not likely to be subject to any EU laws or regulations, which you have to be if you're the single market in any way. Um, and you know, we somehow have to get this into a coherent platform which will be agreed by two halves of a country that are basically in the middle of a cultural war right now. And then we have to persuade 27 other nation states, all of whom have their own electorates, that they want to go along with it too. Um, and as I already mentioned, next year there are elections in two of the most important countries on the other side of the table, France and Germany. The, uh, the guy who has a very good chance of becoming the French candidate for president on, on the conservative side, once again, is Nicolas Sarkozy, um, he has made it very clear that he is not going to take any crap on this one. And his, he, I think he's explicitly stated that his goal will be to screw over Britain. Effectively. <laughs> um, and this is what we're dealing with. But the problem is once you activate Article 50, you're on a deadline. It's two years. And at that point, you either have to have a deal or you're out. Um, and, you know, if you don't have a deal, you can try and extend the timetable. But to do that, you have to get the other 27 countries to agree. If they wouldn't agree on a deal, they're pretty unlikely to agree on an extension. So there is a reasonably good chance that we're going to be tumbling out of the European Union with no trade deal, um, thus crashing the economy and probably also Theresa May's political career in something like 28, 29 months' time. So buckle up. You know what? I've got the perfect solution for our woes. 
Ben, do you reckon we can grab Donald Trump? Because he's half British anyway. He's he's a famous deal maker. He can sort out a deal for us, guys. Isn't he getting uh, debating advice now from uh, from your guys? <laughs> yeah, Farage is helping him out. Yeah. So that's yeah. But uh, Farage has done wonderful things to this country. So I can't. <laughs> yeah, Jordan, I mean, he, he set us free. He set us free, John. We are now uh, a, we're going to be a sovereign, independent nation again. You know, he, he's liberated us. True. But kind of ending up with this though, Ben. Um, the one thing that I can just about understand from the American political uh, cycle this year is that Donald Trump is all about making deals. And the very fact that he's a businessman, he, he thinks he knows how to make deals. Everything is completely transactional. It's black and white. Um, surely he is the white knight that we need to come in and save us from getting a bum deal. Discuss. Um, you know, he's been in and out of bankruptcy and, uh, has plowed multiple businesses into the ground. So, um, sounds just about ideal for the British, you know, to captain the British economy then through this, uh, through this deal-making process. We were a bit of a basket case in the seventies. It it sounds like it can't be any worse than the trajectory you're already on. (laughs) (laughs) Perfect. And on that note, gentlemen, let's move on to the US presidential election. Brief. Must we? <laughs> we kind of have. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Yeah, yeah. All right. Breaking tonight, a big story out of campaign 2016 as a new look at battleground polls shows Donald Trump closing the gap in states that matter most, even winning states that repeatedly voted for President Obama. Welcome to the Kelly File, everyone. I'm Megan Kelly. Today, we have been pouring over data from RealClearPolitics.com and found some dramatic numbers in the seven key states that together represent more than a third of all the electoral votes needed to win. According to the Real Clear Politics average of polls, Donald Trump is now leading in five of the seven top battleground states. 
He's up by five points in Iowa, more than two points in Nevada, two in Ohio, almost a point in North Carolina, and is just edging out Mrs. Clinton in Colorado. Meantime, it is a dead heat in Florida. And while she is still leading in Pennsylvania, Trump has narrowed the gap to less than two points in a state the pundits suggested he could not win. What's more, all these states went for President Obama in the last two election cycles, with the exception of North Carolina. With both candidates suffering from historic levels of unpopularity amongst the public at large, and with even with some large Republican figures refusing to endorse Trump, the polls are still quite tight. But one candidate is obviously temperamentally, intellectually, and politically unsuitable to any political office, let alone the highest in the states. So yeah, why she's never been Secretary of State? So why does Trump still have? a good, statistically speaking, a fighting chance of becoming President of the United States. Over to you, Ben. Make sense of this, please. The most powerful candidate in the United States is sheer voter apathy. Um, some of the uh, elections that I've seen, the, the turnout rates were, certainly not presidential elections, but the turnout rates were in the teens, um, the, the U.S. is, you know, uh, at a broader level, backing away from the presidential election, uh, the, the U.S. is really in danger of having democracy start being uh, a meaningless thing when election results, when their election turnouts are so low. And so in terms of the election, um, when you have two candidates that everyone hates for various reasons, some of them earned and some of them not earned, um, Voter apathy is just is really the thing that you're playing against. Um, and to me, that that's the big story here. Um, Trump's attraction is, you know, we've all discussed to death his attraction to his to his base. Um, but his ability to claw onto voters that aren't in his his immediate base is basically down to the fact that he's not Hillary Clinton. And the same thing is true for Hillary Clinton uh, with Trump. Um, so it, it's really a, a contest of who can be, who can come off with some kind of positive attraction while at the same time making fewer mistakes than their opponent, which it sound, probably sounds obvious, but it's, um, you know, usually you like to think of elections as being, you know, a discussion of, the issues and uh, um, introduction to a candidate and getting to know their personality. In the U.S., we've known both of these people for for decades. Um, there's really nothing new to learn. Um, it's just what particular scandal is going to capture the headline in a given day, and um, you know, maybe some snippet of a glimmer of a you know a human being underneath all the the spin and the the decades of headlines to maybe win someone over. (laughs) John, is this just about voter apathy, as Ben says? Because if these two are so hated and and there's such polarizing figures, isn't that enough to galvanize the other side actually to come out and vote? I I kind of, on the one hand, equally agree with you and disagree with you uh, somewhat there, Ben, about about your analysis. I think, yes, there is definitely... um, an, an apathy in terms of the American electorate, and that has gone all throughout the Western world. Hence, we're having uh, these kind of Brexit 
vote shocks uh, in, in the UK. However, surely this election turnout is going to be a pretty big one because the other side hates the opposing candidate. What do you reckon, John? I mean, on turnout, I have no idea. I do think it is going to be a battle of um, who is who is angrier and more frightened on the day. Um, so a guy I know a bit in, in Washington, D.C., who's a, a podcaster, a guy called Lyman Stone, was saying that he thinks there is a, I think he's on, he's conservative, but he, he thinks there is a danger for the left in pushing this, you know, there is no point in voting for a third party candidate, don't waste your vote thing. Because he said that is going to push some people away from, you know, voting for Gary Johnson to vote for Donald Trump. Because, well, I don't like Trump, I don't want to waste my vote and I'm not voting for Clinton. Um, and I think there is, I, I think that's true on, on, on both sides, but I think there is certainly a danger that, the the more you make this of a head to head thing, the the more motivated people will feel to vote for the per, the, the candidate they they hate least. Uh, that said, I've actually been you know as as a you know lily liberal, I've actually been feeling much better about the U.S. presidential election since the debate on Monday because the polls have definitely the polls have definitely moved in Clinton's direction. Um, you know. It, expectations of donald trump were so low that i think it was widely assumed that you know the the media would declare it a whim for trump on points just because he didn't kind of literally dribble on the floor um as it happened he kind of got on that stage and literally dribbled on the floor like he was just <laughs> so terrible he was so he just he was he was just an, an a, a, a sort of slightly shouty old man he's like you avoid christmas you know um and it's the, he just looks so unpresidential. Um, and obviously, it's not clear that whether the, so the polling boost that Clinton has got means that people are now thinking, hey, you know what, I really want to vote for her. Or they're thinking, I just, I'm just not letting Trump in. Or whether it's simply like her supporters are now more fired up to answer pollsters than, than Trump supporters. But it's definitely been the best week she's had in this campaign in the last five or six, you know, since, since her, sort of, her, her major post-convention lead started wearing off. Um, it's been getting closer and closer and this week that changed and suddenly she's four or five points up again she is I agree with that uh, I you know I, I went into that debate being uh, extremely bored of the entire race and um, we, we saw a side of Clinton in that debate that uh, beyond Trump just dribbling on the floor um, Clinton was playing him like a fiddle um, I don't know some, for some commentators that didn't come across but she was really um it was like a bullfight with uh less blood and uh animal welfare concerns <laughs> <laughs> she she has pulled out a little uh, a little bit more uh in in the points lead nationally but still in certain states like ohio which are the bellwether states it's literally a toss-up um, I think whether you look at uh, 538 or just about any other kind of political betting analysis site, people say that Clinton is still going to win. But what I don't understand is how you can have somebody who is so obviously unsuited for any office, as I said in my initial question, and it's still this close. What does misogyny. this say? <laughs> it, but isn't it a basket of things of which misogyny is part part of it? I mean, misogyny is definitely one of them. I think we shouldn't sort of tiptoe around that. It's like people do find 
reasons to hate Hillary Clinton in a way they don't with many male politicians. It's like, oh, she's 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 just a bit too ambitious. Like, she's running for president. What kind of weirdo ends up running for president without being ambitious? It's like, I just don't understand how anyone kind of comes to the conclusion that that's a negative. Um, but yeah, I think I think people complain is it, about is, things. Is it that she's ambitious, or is that she's uh, she's politically ambitious? Because as crazy as this is sounds, I don't think Donald Trump is politically ambitious at all. This was a marketing move for him, and it's backfired in that he actually ended up being the Republican nominee. I don't think this man has any real want to be president. Or at least he didn't at the start of this campaign anyway. And I think, I think, he's, I think he's running for president because BuzzFeed wrote an article saying Donald Trump is only <laughs> pretending to run for president. He's just trying to prove the media wrong. I literally think that's the reason. And yeah, it's backfired. And now, he's, now he might have to, 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 to launch nuclear missiles one day. So, you know, great work, BuzzFeed. <laughs> I, I think Trump has has some political i mean he's run for president repeatedly for the last couple cycles um at least he's uh he's the desire that he to, yeah he's at least got the desire to put that you know put that next to his name uh for whatever that's worth uh you know perennial presidential candidate donald trump in his bio um in terms of why he's doing so well it, <laughs> um you know globalization disenfranchisement of his base uh these are all pertinent issues and um... but doesn't it matter though but it's a serious point though right i understand or i understand that okay i understand that the america that if you're a 50 year old uh, white american man and you live in wyoming the america that you were born into you do not feel this is the america that you are living in now I understand that. You know, the president's black, for God's sake. Uh, you know, you've got um, pop stars twerking. You know, you've, you've uh, a whole <laughs> load of things, right? I understand that. However... Are you really surely... blaming Donald Trump on the twerking? Is yes. That where we're going? Yes, I am. Yes, I am. Right. However, but no, but serious point. Like, like, culturally, this is not the America, let, I was going to say 50 years ago, of 60 years ago, of, of, of the 1950s, is it? Where it was all white picket fences and you had job security and there were just two superpowers and America was, um, you know, could extend its uh, military power and its economic power throughout the globe easily. And things were relatively safe, comfortable, but they were stable. And that's the key word, stable. But what I don't understand is how you can claim to be an American and want the best interests of America when there is clearly one candidate who is somewhat unhinged. That I, I, I don't get it. And I'm wondering whether I'm not just somebody like me isn't kind of almost like part of the problem that you, that you cannot see. Because I, I just cannot see the appeal of this person temperamentally. He obviously cannot do the job we're not talking about Mitt Romney or a John John Cain who you could disagree with some of their policies but you but you go actually you could run the country this is a, another level of craziness and I seriously Ben I need you to explain to me <laughs> as our you know token American on this uh, on on this show how somebody could look through the fact that this man is picking fights with ex Miss Universe uh, yeah. winners this has got nothing to do with anything which is important so 
so I think I, I'm going to um, say something I never thought I would say. To be fair to Donald Trump's supporters, um, they're not all scared, middle-class, overweight white people. Um, there's something more going on there than just that. Um, I think one of the things you need to do to understand this, this race is go to, uh, like the YouTube comment section on any video or, uh, anything like that, uh, and just see the, the, the comments that are coming in off of the internet. And, um, th there's, there's a lot of people who are, um, not necessarily, you know, the, the stereotypical middle-aged uh, people who, you know, are upset that America isn't the way it was when they were kids, but are socially isolated younger people uh, or rural people or suburban people who, and I think that's a big part of it, the suburban population um, who's been raised in an environment sort of hypersaturated with fear and where they have been living um, on the internet where points are made with uh, rhetorical violence. Um, we're, we're sort of reaping what we've sown in terms of the culture for the last 20 years. Uh, and, uh, I don't know if I'm being coherent at all, but they usually aren't. Um, there's a zeitgeist in the United States that's sort of not represented by either political party. And it's not just that they're racist and misogynistic. And it's just that they don't know how to articulate what they're feeling. And they haven't been given the way to articulate it by people in the media. Uh, and so they've found ways to articulate it for themselves that are not pro-social, uh, <laughs> I guess. Um, I, so this has come up before on this show and, um, I, it's always, uh, it always seems like the left wants to compare people to fascists and, uh, the Trump has been compared to a, a fascist multiple times and I'm going to do it again. But it's not in the the standard <laughs> way of doing it. Uh, it's uh, it's not his policies or anything. It's this aspect of him. It's these people who are supporting him. Um, I, I'm always reminded whenever I see him speak and whenever I see his supporters, I'm reminded of uh, Hannah Arendt's uh, section on the rise of totalitarianism uh, and how people in both Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union who supported these brutal dictatorships were people who were socially isolated, who didn't have any loyalty beyond their their family and their house, and they just wanted to go to work and make money and come home and have people leave them alone and not feel threatened by things that were going on outside their house. And so they, and they had no political consciousness and they didn't have any way to articulate what they were feeling. And so when someone came along and said, you know, we're gonna make Germany great again, uh, or we're going to make the Soviet Union great again. Um, you just need to buy into, you know, joining the co-hosts or my weird racialist theology. Um, you know, they were willing to do it because they were promising them 
that all they had to do was just go to work and collect their paycheck and they could come home and be with their family and feel like they had done everything they needed to do. And this is the, the whole banality of evil thing that Hannah Arendt is uh, famous for, that you know the people who supported these regimes were people who were painfully normal um, and just wanted to be left alone. <laughs> and I see a lot of that in Donald Trump. If people feel like they need to engage politically because they're afraid, but don't have any way to articulate what it is that they want or why things are happening to them because they just don't understand what's going on in the world. Hmm. Um, you sound scarily like a lefty intellectual. Uh, you, um, we we don't like your sort around here, sir. Not on this podcast. A, li- well, a little bit I... more populist and ranty, please. <laughs> they're they're dumb racists. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, so cards on the table. I was a Bernie Sanders supporter, um, but now I'm a Clinton supporter. So that's I am a liberal intellectual. <laughs> so, you're, so you're a sellout, is what you're saying. <laughs> um, I in a democratic system like the United States, uh, the act of voting is a, a game of prisoner's dilemma. And you need to make your vote count as much as you can. <laughs> very true, very true. Going to going to end up with um, talking about the alt right because I've been somewhat kind of fascinated and uh, kind of appalled by uh, the rise of the alt right. Uh, John, um, do you think that regardless of the results of this election, that the alt right uh, could make uh, significant inroads into the British election uh, machine. I mean, when you say alt-right, I kind of think of uh, young guys who are frustrated um, and and think, basically the people who think Milo Yiannopoulos isn't a complete waste of oxygen. Um, and it's I, I don't necessarily think that's where... Uh, that kind of sort of forces is really impacting on on British politics. But I do think uh, a broader thing that 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 Ben was talking about the sort of the left behind. I think globalization has had this. One one of the things that globalization has done is it's kind of pushed economic activity into certain cities, certain areas, but particularly cities. So the value of a square foot of land in London or San Francisco or Paris or New York has gone through the roof because the amount of money you can make by running a business in those cities has, has generally gone through the roof. But at the same time, there's all these places that used to have industry like, um, you know, the rough belt cities of Ohio or like, uh, Sunderland or many of the towns in the North of England, um, that suddenly don't really have a functioning economy anymore. And you try telling these people, no, honestly, free trade has uh, has been good, and they, <laughs> it it's it's they're not just being pig-headed. It hasn't been good for them. Like it may have been good in the round for the economy as a whole, but for their town, it has had probably more negative impacts than good positive ones. And we've not been very good at sort of compensating people for that, or or, or I, I mean. I, I don't know how we compensate people for that. I don't know what the solution is. But I think the problem is for the past 30 or 40 years, the assumption has been that, you know, globalization and free trade are are good for you. 
And for many people, me included, they genuinely have been good, but there are plenty of people they haven't been and they're pissed. Um, so I think they're the ones driving the Trump campaign. They're the ones that drove Brexit. And you also get them um, in a lot of other countries. I think this dissatisfaction is coming out in a number of ways. It's kind of coming out in both left and right. But I think there is certainly a feeling that we kind of need to break through the political consensus that's dominated for the past 30 years because it's leaving too many people behind. Um, and as someone who quite likes the political consensus of the last 30 years, that, that, that scares me a bit. But on the other <laughs> hand, is it really sustainable to just kind of leave large chunks of the UK behind on the grounds that London's doing well? Probably not. So we do need a new settlement. I'm just kind of hoping that we sort of find our way to that through more traditional politics rather than just blowing the whole mess up and starting again, which seems to be Trump's idea. And Brexit, to be honest, is the same principle. So, you know, the UK is currently conducting a control experiment and blowing everything up and seeing if the rubble is better than what was there originally. I would advise the United (laughs) States not to follow us, but, you know, Um, we, we will see. I was listening to um, a very interesting uh, kind of podcast earlier, kind of 538's uh, map of the constituencies that make up Republican voters. One of the interesting things that I took away from that, uh, this question for you, Ben, um, is Mm -hmm. that um, there is this now established kind of narrative, and John has just kind of uh, of bought into it to a certain degree, and I do to a certain degree, but it isn't the whole thing, that uh, your Trump supporter is um, angry and upset, worried about um, declining industry, you know, jobs. And and really, when when people say jobs, they're talking about uh, blue-collar manufacturing jobs which have left the United States, whether it's Detroit or uh, Columbus, Ohio. Uh, but actually, when you look at the the map of the states where Trump is almost definitely going to win, North Dakota, South Dakota, Wyoming, Utah, Kansas, Oklahoma, these are not states which have had um, de-industrialization a- at all. No. And, and, and actually, there is um, your, your average Trump supporter, because they are a Republican, are earn more than your average Democrat and are financially actually more secure. So, so my question is, and, and you might have answered it before, but do it in another clever way. Um, why <laughs> is it that these dyed-in-the-wool uh, Republicans are still going to vote for somebody who a lot of them actually have a lot of reservations about? So we're not talking about your... your angry uh your angry uncle that you know that right. you have to avoid at, at, uh, at thanksgiving we're talking about somebody who's maybe a doctor or a lawyer and has quite an e quite a settled and stable life in uh, let's say idaho why are they still behind this man so there's there's two sides to this um and the one i, I think you're sort of leaning leading towards I'll go with first, and that's the answer you get from the media is that it's cultural, and they're it's you know part of this culture war, and they don't like liberal intellectuals, and uh, and all they're scared of people with different skin tones than themselves. Um, I think that's part of it, um, but I think it's also a more subliminal part of it 
not that they're not racists and misogynists and stuff, but that um, that's not how they justify it to themselves, which um, is something that should be taken into account. Like these, these aren't, for the most part, we're not talking about members of the KKK or white power groups or, or anything, because that's such a tiny portion of the American population that, um, you, you know, that's not where he's getting his support from. Not really. Um, the The broader context is that um, I think there's a a feeling in general amongst the population that um, things aren't going well, um, economically and, you know, you can say culturally and otherwise, but economically, we, we know we've been told repeatedly that, you know, the, the middle class is under attack and, um, that I think most people understand that the recovery just hasn't been going, you know, the great recovery from the great reset great recession just hasn't been what we would have liked it to be um and there's seems to be a feeling that you know people want a new solution for these things rather than just the old solutions that are trotted out by both the left and the right and you know whatever trump is actually saying people don't pay that close attention to him people don't pay that close attention to the speeches people give anyway. Um, it's just, there's a feeling that he's a different kind of candidate and that that's attractive. Um, the other thing though, is that the, the places he's getting his big support from in the electoral maps are, I mean, these are traditional Republican strongholds. Um, and from a, there's a big, um, in the U.S., the the political parties are loosely left and right, but there's a big cultural aspect to it as well, and it might be a hard cultural shift for someone who, you know, lives in, you know, uh, rural Nebraska, somewhere in the south or whatever, Nebraska, whatever, mm-hmm. um, who has been a Republican all their life, and they, you know, are very traditional in terms of their 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 lifestyle and everything to even with Trump being as outrageous as he is it'd be very difficult for a person with that identity with that core piece of their identity to go out and say uh, I'm going to vote for Clinton particularly since Clinton has and this is getting back to what we started out this whole conversation with Clinton has this narrative that's been built up around her since she was first lady that just Republicans despise this woman. Um, a lot of it is based on misogyny, but at this point, the misogyny is so deeply buried under years and years and years of negative narrative um, that you know you can dislike her without being actively misogynistic because just there's been so much that's been said about her in the press that you can um, you can feel like she's overly ambitious or whatever and um lie to yourself that it's not about her <laughs> being a woman um I, I think there's that cultural aspect that you know she's been boogeyman number one since the first clinton administration um almost mm-hmm. even more than her husband 
Um, because I mean, she was the one back in the early 90s who was suggesting like actual socialized medicine. And the Republicans just let out this pained howl. And so she's come to represent everything that people with a, a, a right-wing conservative identity hate without really having articulatable reasons as to why. Well, um, uh, you, you've probably just articulated a, a, couple, a couple of reasons there. But, gentlemen, we're going to have to uh, kind of move off because otherwise we'll... We'll have um, somewhat of a, a circular set of uh, questions, or me asking the same question in a slightly different way, and then Ben, you giving another very long, thought-out, detailed answer, and me <laughs> still not r- quite accepting it, and then asking the question in yet another, <laughs> yet another way. So let's move off um, here and now. Um, and I suppose, uh, just very quickly to say that I suppose this is a, a massive opening for, for Gary Johnson and the Libertarian Party, which they, you know, they've just absolutely bungled. They, they, this could have been the election for that party to really kind of break through if they'd had the right leader. But hey, hum. I think. Did I you think see who's running Gary Johnson's camp? No. Connecticut. It's uh, Melissa Joan Hart, who you may remember from such 90s kids shows as uh, Sabrina the Teenage Witch and Clarissa Explains It All, so with, <laughs> with her behind him, I think, he's, he's, he's going to win Connecticut anyway. I, I think th- there was a, a possibility for third and fourth parties to do well out of this, and both uh, the Green Party and the Libertarian Party candidates have uh, whiffed really badly uh, in the last couple of weeks, so... Which is unfortunate, because I really liked Jill Stein. <laughs> We're going to start off with um, takeaways of the week. We're going to start off with you, uh, Mr. Uh, very Thoughtful Beardy Ben, uh, because I still <laughs> haven't thought of mine. So I hope you've got yours there, John, because uh, I'm taking this time not to listen to what anybody says but to think about mine. Over to you in New Jersey. You've got a big beard. Tell us what it is. So... Um hate to correct you now at the end of the show, but I actually live in Rhode Island. So why am I looking <laughs> online and it's telling me that, oh, it's on, on Facebook, you're from New Jersey? I was born in New Jersey and I lived there for many years. I should probably fix my Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so uh, I live in Rhode Island and it's definitely um, securely become the fall or the autumn here in, in Rhode Island. And uh, it's it's overcast and cool and gray, and that's sort of how I like it. And in uh, a week or two, the clouds will get burned off and the trees will start to change colors. And this is really uh, the time that you want to be in New England. It's the most New Englandy time, and it's a good time to have a nice warm cup of coffee or chicken soup or something. And it's at times like this that I like to reread The Lord of the Rings. And so I've been doing that this week, and uh, I really, really enjoy it. So that's that's my takeaway. John Elledge, what's your takeaway of the last seven days? Uh, well, I was going to say Channel 4 is currently doing a very good program called National Treasure starring Robbie Coltrane, which is about a, a comedian from decades past who's accused of of, of rape. Um, and it's, it's very beautifully filmed. It's very compelling because you're never quite sure whether, you, whether it's true or not, whether there's any truth to the allegations, whether he might have abused his daughter. It's an incredibly well-done piece of television written by a guy called Jack Fawn. Um, 
But if Ben's going to go for Lord of the Rings, then I'm just going to own up and say what I've actually really been enjoying is rewatching uh, the 21st century series of Doctor Who because I too am a massive nerd. And it is brilliant. Bits of it are, in fact, substantially better than I remember. So, you know, I would recommend that to a friend. <laughs> I'll tell you the bit of Doctor Who which I just thought was just spellbinding. As a kid, hated Doctor Who. I just, it could never line up for me against American sci-fi. So back in the 70s, um, even though Star Trek had finished, visually that was so superior to Doctor Who and I just couldn't get over the wobbly set. So as a kind of 10, 11 year old, I was just like so anti-Doctor Who. But that um, there's that episode where in the new Doctor Who, where the aliens or whatever the heck they are have these fused gas masks on them and it's are you my mummy that bloody knew you were going to pick that one somehow. oh it's yeah. just it, it's, it was just a stunning bit of television of which you could still sit down because I remember my son must have been about three or four at the time something or another and he was scared but he wasn't scared horrendously so he, he couldn't sleep and you could sit down and watch that and it was Oh, it was just just a masterful bit bit of TV, and yeah, the the new the new Doctor Who. I'm not I'm not a big Who fan at all. I, I'm not, but um, I definitely kind of kind of got got into it round about that time. I thought, yeah, I could sit down and watch this. So so if you're kind of Who light like I am, that's the kind of reference you you pull out. Then is it, John? Uh, no, I just that was. I mean, that was an incredibly good episode, um, and just I don't know. I just could tell you were going to go for that one. I have no idea why. I just thought he's going to say the empty child, isn't he? I bet he goes for the empty child. <laughs> no, uh, yeah, um, those yeah, weeping I, I statues are pretty good too. I think, like you know, eleven years on, it's kind of difficult to remember like how how Doctor Who was this national joke, this kind of long running series that, as, as you say, everyone just crack jokes about the wobbly sets and so on, mm. despite the fact it had been on television for a quarter of a century, and you know, and it was an amazing thing they did in not only managing to to bring it back successfully but turning it into you know seriously one of the biggest franchises on television in a way it had never been in the 20th century so you know my 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 the the nerdy child i once was would be very delighted by this outcome so <laughs> kind of kind anyway of... you're just playing for time or you think of something yourself aren't you <laughs> well kind of i kind of got one but i think it's a little bit lazy i've been watching in the last week i've been watching a thing called easy which is a new series on netflix and it's set in chicago and i think there's only about eight eight episodes and each episode is definitely a bottle episode um, but you do see characters kind of um, wandering and wandering out of, of, of other episodes. And it's all about relationships and, and sex. And one of the things which I really like about it, it, it's, it's very kind of true to life. And you can watch at least half a dozen of the different, uh, different scenarios and kind of recognise people, couples that you know. Um, this one episode two is about a couple, uh, a couple of lesbians, and uh, one of them kind of pretends to be or tries to be a vegetarian because she thinks that that's what her partner, a new partner, is going to want. And you know, it's kind of comedy ensues because of that. So she starts trying not to eat meat and, and trying to ride a bicycle and whatever. But what I really, really take away from it, apart from the fact that it's some very good observational. Uh, skits on on modern society it's actually very heartwarming there's only one of the kind of eight stories which you go oh 
type of thing it's actually just very nice and very nice in a very kind of traditional way that most of the stories kind of get wrapped up most of the couples whether it's the couple that want to try a threesome um you know they still kind of are a couple kind of afterwards at the end and um I just kind of quite like that. So that's kind of my takeaway of the week. Um, easy. I was going to try and say Luke Cage also on Netflix, but my jury's still out on that. Normally, I'd be all behind a, a black superhero. Number one, I love superheroes. Number two, I do remember the Luke Cage stroke power man of the 1970s where he wore bright blue trousers and a bright yellow shirt and this ridiculous tiara. Um, but I, I'm finding it. I don't know about... Cause you're into your superheroes, aren't you, Ben? Yeah. Yeah, because I did, I, I did have a little bit of a Facebook stalk just before we started, and there's a there's a, a baby grow, and your little ones when a Batman baby grow, and then you're <laughs> you're a big big ass Trekkie as well, and, and all sorts. But but anyway, I I don't know I don't know if you've watched uh, any of Luke Cage, but I can't quite get into it so far. But I'm going to solve it through. I'm only onto episode yeah. three, and it's just a little bit too angst ridden for me, um, and also. Uh, the, the whole kind of power dynamic because his skin is literally bulletproof well it's actually bulletproof there's no literally about it his skin is bulletproof and he is so strong that I'm interesting to see what his vulnerability is because right here and now no one can do anything against him whereas with Jessica Jones or with Daredevil um, their power sets weren't so kind of turned up to the max so Jessica Jones could still, you know, be hurt, so to speak, when she goes toe-to-toe with somebody. And obviously Daredevil is just a, a regular guy. But there you go. There's my inner superhero nerd. So um, easy on Netflix. That's the one. However, uh, Luke Cage, uh, I don't know as yet. Um, folks, that has been Mid-Atlantic. Thank you for bearing with us uh, because we didn't put out a show last week. But it's somewhat hard to kind of schedule these things when you've got competing um, various con- different time zones. Um, thank you to the people who started reviewing us again on iTunes. Please, please, please go back and do it again. Um, we only ask that you show us your support, not by delving into your wallets or your purses, but by going onto iTunes to write us a review, because it means that we go up those um, iTunes charts. Um, on social media, you can follow us where we are, at Mid-Atlantic Show, and I promise to get a little bit more active on it in the next week. Mr. Ellis, if somebody wants to follow you on social media, how can they do that? I am almost always on Twitter, where I'm uh, John Elledge, which is J-O-N-N-E-L-L-E-D-G-E. And how about you, Mr. Beardy Ben? Um, so I'm on Twitter. I don't use it much. The best way to get in touch with me is uh, through my podcast's Facebook page. Uh, and my podcast is Wittenberg to Westphalia. So if you go to Facebook and search for Wittenberg to Westphalia, you'll find uh, the podcast show page. And of course, yes, me on social media. I'm at Roy Fieldspells, R-O-I-F-I-E-L-D. We'll see you all again in approximately 14 days' time. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. 
Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.